Chapter the Seventh, Section Seven through Eight of The Secret Places of the Heart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carl Henning. The Secret Places of the Heart by H. G. Wells. Chapter the Seventh, Section Seven through Eight. As Miss Grammont and Sir Richmond Hardy fulfilled the details of his excellent program and revised their impressions of the past and their ideas about the future in the springtime sunlight of Wiltshire and Somerset, with Miss Seyffert acting the part of an almost ostentatiously discreet chorus, it was inevitable that their conversations should become, by imperceptible gradations, more personal and intimate. They kept up the pose which was supposed to represent Dr. Martineau's philosophy of being man and woman on their planet, considering its future. But insensibly they developed the idiosyncrasies of their position. They might profess to be man and woman in the most general terms, but the facts that she was the daughter not of every man, but old Grammont, and that Sir Richmond was the angry leader of a minority upon the Fuel Commission, became more and more important. What shall we do with this planet of ours? Gave way by the easiest transitions to, What are you and I doing, and what have we got to do? How do you feel about it all? What do you desire, and what do you dare? It was natural that Sir Richmond should talk of his fuel commission to a young woman whose interests in fuel were even greater than his own. He found that she was very much better read than he was in the recent literature of socialism, and that she had what he considered to be a most unfeminine grasp of economic ideas. He thought her attitude towards socialism a very sane one because it was also his own. So far as socialism involved the idea of a scientific control of natural resources as a common property administered in the common interest, she and he were very greatly attracted by it. But so far as it served as a form of expression for the merely insubordinate discontent of the many with the few under any conditions, so long as it was a formula for class jealousy and warfare, they were both repelled by it. If she had had any illusions about the working class possessing as a class any profounder political wisdom or more generous public impulses than any other class, those illusions had long since departed. People were much the same, she thought, in every class. There was no stratification of either rightness or righteousness. He found he could talk to her of his work and aims upon the Fuel Commission and of the conflict and failure of motives he found in himself, as freely as he had done to Dr. Martineau, and with a sure confidence of understanding. Perhaps his talks with the doctor had got his ideas into order and made them more readily expressible than they would have been otherwise. He argued against the belief that any class could be good as a class or bad as a class, and he instanced the conflict of motives he found in all the members of his committee, and most so in himself. He repeated the persuasion he had already confessed to Dr. Martineau that there was not a single member of the Fuel Commission, but had a considerable drive towards doing the right thing about fuel, and not one who had a single-minded, 
unencumbered drive towards the right thing. That, said Sir Richmond, is what makes life so interesting, and in spite of a thousand tragic disappointments, so hopeful. Every man is a bad man, every man is a feeble man, and every man is a good man. My motives come and go, yours do the same. We vary in response to the circumstances about us. Given a proper atmosphere, most men will be public-spirited, right-living generous. Given perplexities in darkness, most of us can be cowardly and vile. People say you cannot change human nature, and perhaps that is true. But you can change its responses endlessly. The other day I was in Bohemia, discussing Silesian coal with Benet, and I went to see the festival of the Bohemian so-calls. Opposite to where I sat, far away across the arena, was a great bank of men of the so-called organizations, an unbroken brown mass wrapped in their brown uniform cloaks. Suddenly the sun came out, and at a word the whole body flung back their cloaks, showed their Garibaldi shirts, and became one solid blaze of red. It was an amazing transformation until one understood what had happened. Yet nothing material had changed but the sunshine, and given a change in laws and prevailing ideas and the very same people who are greedy traders, grasping owners and revolting workers today will all throw their cloaks aside and you will find them working together cheerfully, even generously, for a common end. They aren't traders and owners and workers and so forth by any inner necessity. Those are just the ugly parts they play in the present drama, which is nearly at the end of its run. That's a hopeful view, said Miss Grummet. I don't see the flaw in it, if there is a flaw. There isn't one, said Sir Richmond. It is my chief discovery about life. I began with the question of fuel and the energy it affords mankind, and I have found that my generalization applies to all human affairs. Human beings are fools, weaklings, cowards, passionate idiots, I grant you. That is the brown cloak side of them, so to speak. But they are not such fools and so forth that they can't do pretty well materially if once we hammer out a sane collective method of getting and using fuel, which people generally will understand, in the place of our present methods of snatch and wrangle. Of that I am absolutely convinced. Some work, some help, some willingness you can get out of everybody. That's the red. And the same principle applies to most labor and property problems. To health, to education, to population, social relationships, and war and peace. We haven't got the right system. We have inefficient half-baked systems, or no system at all. And a wild confusion and war of ideas in all these respects. But there is a right system possible nonetheless. Let us only hammer our way through to the sane and reasonable organization in this and that and the other human affairs. And once we have got it, we shall have got it for good. We may not live to see even the beginnings of success, but the spirit of order, the spirit that has already produced organized science, if only there are a few faithful, persistent people to stick to the job. 
will in the long run certainly save mankind and make human life clean and splendid. Happy work in a clear mind, if I could live to see it. And as for us, in our time, measured by the end we serve, we don't matter. We know we don't matter. We have to find our fun in the building and in our confidence that we do really build. So long as our confidence lasts, there is no great hardship, said Sir Richmond. So long as our confidence lasts, she repeated after him. Ah, cried Sir Richmond, there it is. So long as our confidence lasts, so long as one keeps one's mind steady. That is what I came away with Dr. Martineau to discuss. I went to him for advice. I haven't known him for more than a month. It's amusing to find myself preaching forth to you. It was just faith I had lost. Suddenly I had lost my power of work. My confidence in the rightness of what I was doing evaporated. My will failed me. I don't know if you will understand what that means. It wasn't that my reason didn't assure me just as certainly as ever that what I was trying to do was the right thing to try to do. But somehow that seemed a cold and personally unimportant proposition. The life had gone out of it. He paused as if arrested by a momentary doubt. I don't know why I tell you these things, he said. You tell them me, she said. It's a little like a patient in a hydropath retailing his ailments. No, no, go on. I began to think now that what took the go out of me as my work went on was the lack of any real fellowship in what I was doing. It was the pressure of the opposition in the committee, day after day. I was being up against men who didn't reason against me, but who just showed by everything they did that the things I wanted to achieve didn't matter to them one rap. It was going back to a home, lunching in clubs, reading papers, going about a world in which all the organization, all the possibility of the organization I dream of is tacitly denied. I don't know if it seems an extraordinary confession of weakness to you, but that steady refusal of the majority of my committee to come into cooperation with me has beaten me, or, at any rate, has come very near to beating me. Most of them, you know, are such able men. You can feel their knowledge and common sense. They and everybody about me seemed busy and intent upon more immediate things that seemed more real to them than this remote, theoretical, priggish end I have set for myself. He paused. Go on, said Miss Grammont. I think I understand this. And yet I know I am right. I know you're right, I'm certain. Go on. If one of those ten thousand members of the so-called society had thrown back his brown cloak and shone red when all the others still kept themselves cloaked, if he was a normal, sensitive man, he might have felt something of a fool. He might have felt premature and presumptuous. Red he was, and the others he knew were red also. But why show it? That is the peculiar distress of people like ourselves who have some sense of history and some sense of a larger life within us than our merely personal life. We don't want to go on with the old story merely. 
we want to live somehow in that larger life and to live for its greater ends and lose something unbearable of ourselves and in wanting to do that we are only wanting to do what nearly everybody perhaps is ripe to do and will presently want to do when the new age martineau talks about begins to come it may come very quickly as the red came at prague but for the present everyone hesitates about throwing back the cloak until the cloak becomes unbearable she said repeating his word i came upon this holiday in the queerest state i thought i was ill i thought i was overworked but the real trouble was a loneliness that robbed me of all driving force nobody seemed thinking and feeling with me i have never realized until now what a gregarious beast man is it needed only a day or so with martineau in the atmosphere of ideas and beliefs like my own to begin my restoration now as i talk to you that is why i have clutched at your company because here you are coming from thousands of miles away and you talk my ideas you fall into my ways of thought as though we had gone to the same school perhaps we have gone to the same school she said you mean disappointment disillusionment having to find something better in life than the first things it promised us but you disappointed i thought that in america people might be educating already on different lines even in america miss grammont said crops only grow on the ploughed land section 8 glastonbury in the afternoon was wonderful they talked of avalon and of that vanished legendary world of king arthur and his knights and in the early evening they came to wells and a pleasant inn with a quaint little garden before its front door that gave directly upon the cathedral the three tourists devoted a golden half hour before dinner to the sculptures on the western face the great screen of wrought stone rose up warmly gray and clear and distinct against a clear blue sky in which the moon hung round and already bright that western facade with its hundreds of little figures tells the whole story of god and man from adam to the last judgment as the medieval mind conceived it it is an even fuller exposition than the carved bible history that goes round the chapter house at salisbury it presented the universe said sir richmond as a complete crystal globe it explained everything in life in a simple and natural manner hope heaven devil and despair generations had lived and died mentally within that crystal globe convinced that it was all and complete and now said miss grammont we are in limitless space and time the crystal globe is broken and said belinda amazingly for she had been silent for some time the goldfish are on the floor vivi free to flop about are they any happier it was one of those sudden rhetorical triumphs that are best left alone i trow not said belinda giving the last touch to it after dinner sir richmond and miss grammont walked round the cathedral and along by the moat of the bishop's palace and miss seyffert stayed in the hotel to send off postcards to her friends a duty she had neglected for some days the evening was warm and still and the moon was approaching its full and very bright 
Insensibly the soft afterglow passed into moonlight. At first the two companions talked very little. Sir Richmond was well content with this tacit friendliness, and Miss Grammont was preoccupied because she was very strongly moved to tell him things about herself that hitherto she had told to no one. It was not merely that she wanted to tell him these things, but also that for reasons she did not put as yet very clearly to herself she thought they were things he ought to know. She talked of herself at first in general terms. Life comes on anyone with a rush. Childhood seems lasting forever, and then suddenly one tears into life. She said it was even more so for women than it was for men. You are shown life, a crowded, vast spectacle, full of what seems to be intensely interesting activities, and endless delightful and frightful and tragic possibilities, and you have hardly had time to look at it before you are called upon to make decisions, and there is something in your blood that urges you to decisive acts. Your mind, your reason resists. Give me time, it says. They clamor at you with treats, crowds, shows, theaters, all sorts of things. Lovers buzz at you, each trying to fix you part of his life when you are trying to get clear to live a little of your own. Her father had had one merit at any rate. He had been jealous of her lovers and very ready to interfere. I wanted a lover to love, she said. Every girl, of course, wants that. I wanted to be tremendously excited, and at the same time I dreaded the enormous interference. I wasn't temperamentally a cold girl. Men interested and excited me, but there were a lot of men about, and they clashed with each other. Perhaps, way down in some out-of-the-way place, I should have fallen in love quite easily with the one man who came along, but no man fixed his image. After a year or so, I think I began to lose the power which is natural to a young girl of falling very easily into love. I became critical of the youths and men who were attracted to me, and I became analytical about myself. I suppose it is because you and I are going to part so soon that I can speak so freely to you. But there are things about myself that I have never had out even with myself. I can talk to myself in you. She paused, baffled. I know exactly, said Sir Richmond. In my composition, I perceive there have always been two ruling strains. I was a spoiled child at home, a rather reserved girl at school, keen on my dignity. I liked respect. I didn't give myself away. I suppose one would call that personal pride. Anyhow, it was that streak made me value the position of being a rich married woman in New York. That was why I became engaged to Lake. He seemed to be as good a man as there was about. He said he adored me and wanted me to crown his life. He wasn't ill-looking or ill-mannered. The second main streak in my nature wouldn't, however, fit in with that. She stopped short. The second streak said Sir Richmond. Oh, love of beauty, love of romance. I want to give things their proper names. I don't want to pretend to you. It was more or less than that. It was imaginative sensuousness. Why should I pretend it wasn't in me? 
I believe that streak is in all women. I believe so, too, in all properly constituted women. I tried to devote that streak to Lake, she said. I did my best for him, but Lake was much too much of a gentleman, or an idealist about women, or what you will, to know his business as a lover. And that side of me fell in love, the rest of me protesting, with a man named Caston. It was a notorious affair. Everybody in New York couples my name with Caston, except when my father is about. His jealousy has blasted an area of silence, in that matter, all around him. He will not know of that story, and they dare not tell him. I should pity anyone who tried to tell it him. What sort of man was this Caston? Miss Grammont seemed to consider. She did not look at Sir Richmond. She kept her profile to him. He was, she said deliberately, a very rotten sort of man. She spoke like one resolved to be exact and judicial. I believe I always knew he wasn't right, but he was very handsome, and ten years younger than Lake, and nobody else seemed to be all right, so I swallowed that. He was an artist, a painter. Perhaps you know his work. Sir Richmond shook his head. He could make American businessmen look like characters out of the Three Musketeers, they said, and he was beginning to be popular. He made love to me in exactly the way Lake didn't. If I shut my eyes to one or two things, it was delightful. I liked it. But my father would have stood a painter as my husband almost as cheerfully as he would a man of color. I made a fool of myself, as people say, about Caston. Well, when the war came, he talked in a way that irritated me. He talked like an East Side Annunzio about art and war. It made me furious to know it was all talk and that he didn't mean business. I made him go. She paused for a moment. He hated to go. Then I relented, or I missed him, and I wanted to be made love to, or I really wanted to go on my own account. I forget. I forget my motives altogether now. That early war time was a queer time for everyone. A kind of wildness got into the blood. I threw over Lake. All the time things had been going on in New York, I had still been engaged to Lake. I went to France. I did good work. I did do good work. And also things were possible that would have seemed fantastic in America. You know, something of the wartime atmosphere. There was death everywhere, and people snatched at gratifications. Caston made, Tomorrow We Die, his text. We contrived three days in Paris together, not very cleverly. All sorts of people knew about it. We went very far. She stopped short. Well, said Sir Richmond. He did die. Another long pause. They told me Caston had been killed, but someone hinted, or I guessed, that there was more in it than an ordinary casualty. Nobody, I think, realizes that I know. This is the first time I have ever confessed that I do know. He was shot. He was shot for cowardice. That might happen to any man. 
said Sir Richmond presently. No man is a hero all round the twenty-four hours. Perhaps he was caught by circumstances, unprepared. He may have been taken by surprise. It was the most calculated, cold-blooded cowardice imaginable. He let three other men go on and get killed. No, it is no good your inventing excuses for a man you know nothing about. It was vile, contemptible cowardice and meanness. It fitted in with a score of ugly little things I remembered. It explained them all. I know the evidence and the judgment against him were strictly just and true, because they were exactly in character. And that, you see, was my man. That was the lover I had chosen. That was the man to whom I had given myself with both hands. Her soft, unhurrying voice halted for a time, and then resumed in the same even tones of careful statement. I wasn't disgusted, not even with myself. About him I was chiefly sorry, intensely sorry, because I had made him come out of a life that suited and protected him to the war. About myself I was stunned and perplexed. I had the clearest realization that what you and I have been calling the bright little personal life had broken off short and was spoilt and over and done with. I felt as though it was my body they had shot. And there I was, with fifty years of life left in me, and nothing particular to do with them. That was just the prelude to life, said Sir Richmond. It didn't seem so at the time. I felt I had to get hold of something or go to pieces. I couldn't turn to religion. I had no religion. And duty? What is duty? I set myself to that. I had a kind of revelation one night. Either I find out what all this world is about, I said, or I perish. I have lost myself, and I must forget myself by getting hold of something bigger than myself, and becoming that. That's why I have been making a sort of historical pilgrimage. That's my story, Sir Richmond. That's my education. Somehow, though your troubles are different, it seems to me that my little muddle makes me understand how it is with you. What you've got, this idea of a scientific ordering of the world, is what I, in my younger, less experienced way, have been feeling my way towards. I want to join on. I want to get hold of this idea of a great fuel control in the world and of a still greater economic and educational control of which it is a part. I want to make that idea a part of myself. Rather, I want to make myself a part of it. When you talk of it, I believe in it altogether. And I believe in it when I talk of it to you. End of chapter the seventh, section seven through eight.